بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد Imam Dardir, whose work we're reading on Tasawwuf and Sufism, he is saying, <coughs> he's saying, وَاتَّبِعْ سَبِيلَ النَّاسِكِينَ الْعُلَمَاءِ which we had started reading last time. And basically he was saying that how these different sciences in Islam had appeared and eventually developed. He said that, what, what he said initially was that uh, among the earliest ulama, they they basically had both the knowledge of uh, the Aqidah and the Deen, they were specialists in that. They were also specialists uh, in the Ilm of Fiqh and Jurisprudence and they were also uh, specialists and masters in the Ilm of the uh, Esoteric, the inside, which is the, the heart and uh, behavior and so on. <coughs> However, he says that after that, people became more specialized. And today it's purely specialization. In fact, nowadays, you're only a specialist pretty much in the one very small area that you specialize in uh, for a number of reasons. But anyway, there are still people who uh, can have more than one specialization, even today. But generally speaking, he says that they became dominant in one specialization. It doesn't mean that they absolutely didn't know anything else about anything else. <clears throat> you, would, you would never hear a scholar of the past probably saying, <clears throat> uh, I'm, I'm going to speak about the Quran only, I'm not going to speak about Hadith. It's impossible for you to do that. But today you have actually people who do that. Say, I, got, you know, I haven't studied Hadith, so I can't say anything about Hadith or Fiqh or whatever. I can only study about, tell you about the Quran. Because they go hand in hand. In fact, according to Ibn al-Jawzi, he says that there is no... No scholar can be proper unless he actually is a master in all sciences. Now that's a very high standard. And he gives his reasons for that. But that's to be a very proficient expert in, in any science. You need to be an expert in other sciences because they're all interrelated. So <clears throat> he says among the, th uh, the uh, among the three groups that they divided into, he says there was one who uh, set themselves up to just focus on, uh, on, um, uh, on revealing and... Uh, Detailing the ahkam al-shari'ah, the practical ahkam, the practical laws of Islam, which is basically your fiqh and masail, is this halal, haram, makruh, and uh, wajib, mustahab, etc. They are obviously among the many imams that we spoke about, that number of them had actually set themselves up, but only four survived until today, which are the four imams which we know about. So that's why he's saying that only four of them actually survived. So who are these four? He doesn't, he doesn't mention them here because he's just talking about them briefly. It's not the focus of this book. But since we're on this topic, it's good to know about it so that we can appreciate who these people are. We hear about them. There's a lot of us may even ascribe to one of them, in fact. And we may have friends who ascribe to others among them. So what is so great about these people that uh, makes them... Uh, th those who have stood the test of time and uh, who've managed to, their knowledge has managed to come down to us today. Because I am teaching now, I may write a book. How long is that book going to last for? How long will it continue to be published? How long will people read it for? Right? Uh, how long will somebody benefit from here? Will somebody benefit from here? Will they take it and give it to somebody else? 
Otherwise, it's all just going to die out. So, <clears throat> just having something on YouTube doesn't mean that, I mean, it's there somewhere in the bellies of YouTube, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be used by everybody. Somebody's going to have to look for it. Somehow it has to be out there for people to listen to. That's just a modern example I'm saying. So, who are these four? These are obviously Imam Malik, Imam Shafi'i, Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, <coughs> Rahimahullah radiallahu anhum. Let's start off with Imam Malik because Imam Malik is the Imam Malik is the author's uh, Imam. So let's just start with Imam Malik for that baraka, baraka. So Imam Malik, he's Anas ibn Malik, ibn Amir, ibn Amr, ibn Harith, and he. His is it goes on. I'm not going to read it. It's Al Asbahi. So he's from Al Asbahi, that tribe, which is a clan of the Himyar tribe from the Arabs. According to this biography, it says that he he was a very long-term pregnancy. Uh, pregnancies generally, right now, they'll probably induce you after six uh, after nine months, right? They don't let let the baby carry on. But there is the concept of is it a passive embryo you call that? There's a concept of a passive embryo where even in Sharia you can last up to two years. So they allow for up to two years for the, for the baby. And I actually read about this recently. And there's a concept of passive embryo, if, that, if I've got the right term. Right? That it doesn't grow that much to, I mean, like the way it's grown in nine months. It just somehow it stays for that much. That's why even the fuqaha, they've said, three, they've said two years maximum. That if, for example, <clears throat> somebody somebody uh, divorces his wife and the wife claims that uh, I'm, I'm still pregnant. So when she's pregnant, her idda, her waiting period is only going to end when she bears the child. And in that time, she's going to get expenses from the husband. He's responsible. So if she says that, okay, well, the husband's going to say, well, I paid for nine months to you. Where, where's the baby gone? He said, no, it's not here yet. So she can pull that to two years because there have been cases of passive uh, embryos or whatever they're called and they, or sleeper embryos. I'm not sure, I forget the term exactly. I thought I've got a doctor here, might help me. No? Not a gynecologist? So. Yeah, it's, it's red because today I don't think they allow anybody to do that. 42 weeks and then they'll just force you out, force it out. Yeah, exactly. So whether by caesarean or otherwise induction. So. So, yeah, maybe they just don't, and these are probably very specific types of embryos. It's not, probably not everybody because, I mean, that would be a massive problem. I mean, I doubt it would stay in, you know, if it's a normal growth of an embryo, it, it would not stay. So, it says he was a very long term, right? He was definitely not premature at, at all. I mean, since it was post-mature, if, if you want to call that, if that's such a term. He, there's another claim he's making here, Wallahu alam. He says that the longer the child is in the stomach, then... Wallahu alam, I'm not sure, even sure about this, right? Um, the, the longer the child is in the stomach, the, the, the more intelligent. Wallahu alam. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure, I can't say anything about that. Again, I, I don't want to speak because I, I don't know any of this. It's just, that's what he, the biography is saying, so we'll leave it there. It's a very cozy place to be, so... I mean, th there's a story about the two embryos who were speaking to one another and one was saying to the other that you don't want to go out of this world 
right? One, in fact, one was saying that no, there is no world outside, right? There is no world outside, because how would you survive? Right now, we've got direct food link, you know, through the umbilical cord, and it's so cozy and it's safe. There is nothing outside. There is nothing beyond this. This is our world. And the other one said, no, all of this, you're going to have to do it for yourself. Right? It's going to be a trial. It's going to be a test. Right? Well, what does the embryo know about the future world? Unless it's told. So likewise, I mean, what do we know about the world hereafter unless we're told? Otherwise, you'd deny it. Nobody's come back from there. Like for the embryo, nobody's come back to the embryonic stage to tell them anything. Right? So likewise with us, I mean, Wallahu alam. He was born in uh, 93 Hijri, which basically makes, it, makes him 13 years younger than Imam Abu Hanifa because Imam Abu Hanifa was born in 80 Hijri. So he's 93 Hijri. If that, whether that was in the city itself or that was on the outskirts or something related to the city, that there's a difference of opinion about that. But he's definitely considered to be from Medina Munawwara, from the great city. And that's what, uh, that's what uh, is very important to, to know about him as well. <coughs> Some say that he was born a bit of a distance, more closer to Tabuk maybe, which is to the, towards the north. But whatever the case be, he definitely stayed then in Medina Munawwara and that's where he was. And then of course, he, he passes away in 179 Hijri. 179 Hijri, which is Imam Abu Hanifa passed away in 150. So that's 29 years afterwards. So that means he must, he must have lived longer than Imam Abu Hanifa. He's then buried in the Baqi, the graveyard. And his Qabr, according to the author here, is well known. Today, it's not as well known, unfortunately, because a lot of that has been obliterated and obscured. Not necessarily obliterated, it's been obscured, definitely. And there's a lot of disinformation that takes place when you go there. People standing there saying, no, this is not that. It could be that these are the kind of answers that they give you. Uh, his father's Malik. His father is Malik. So his father and his grandfather were from the great Tabi'een. He was not a Tabi'i, but he was a Tabi'ut Tabi'i. Basically, he was, a, he was the third generation. But his father and grandfather, they both saw Sahaba. In fact, one of them at least was among the four people that carried Uthman عنه, to his grave to bury him. Because it had to be done at night, you know, because there was a a massive commotion taking place and he'd just been killed, martyred. So they're the ones who uh, bathed him and they, they, they buried him. They shrouded and buried him. So his father, uh, his grandfather's name is Abu Amir, who was a Sahabi. Um, or the, uh, uh, he's a Sahabi. Uh, so his, his, his father's a Tabi'i, his grandfather's a Sahabi. His father's a Tabi'i and his grandfather, Abu Amir, is a Sahabi. He actually took part in some of the battles with the Prophet ﷺ. Not in Badr though. There are also some opinions that Imam Malik himself can be a Tabi'i because it's said he may have met with one of the Sahabiyat. But that's not proven. Uh, that's not proven because that Sahabiyah, that, that, so the Aisha bintu Sa'd, Bintu Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas, Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas' daughter. She's actually not a Sahabi, she's a Tabi'i. So that's why you can't say that he is a, a Tabi'i himself, because she's a Tabi'i. And if he met a Tabi'i, then he has to be a Tabi'i, tabi, not, not a Tabi'i itself, right? So she was not a Sahabi. Now, 
there is a hadith about the Prophet ﷺ which has been applied to him. That hadith is لا تنقضي الساعة حتى تضرب أكباد الإبل أو حتى تضرب أكباد الإبل من كل ناحية إلى عالم المدينة يطلبون علمه There's various versions. Another one says يوشك أن تدرك أكباد الإبل يطلبون العلم فلا يجدون أحدا أعلم من عالم المدينة that's, that's a hadith which many people have applied to him. The hadith says that soon a time will come. This is the Prophet ﷺ saying that a time will come when people will be striking the sides of their camels, right? Uh, the livers of their camels, essentially. Uh, they will be seeking knowledge. They will not find it anywhere except they won't find anybody who will give it to them, meaning in that level, um, except the alim of Medina. So that's why he constantly had a stream of people outside his door to study with him. I mean, he was in the great city. People would visit the city. Probably in the Muslim world, it may have been probably even today. If you look around, which is probably the most visited Muslim city? Right? Medina Munawwara, Makkah Mukarrama. Right? It's probably the most visited cities in the Muslim world. I mean, Istanbul gets visited a lot. Right? But in terms of Muslims visiting Muslim, uh, a Muslim city, it's probably Makkah Mukarrama, Medina Munawwara. So they would be outside his door. He would give. Uh, he would obviously uh, be there to give fatwas to people, and so he taught there for about seventy years. He taught in Medina Munawwara for about seventy years, and uh, there was there was one point where for about twenty five years it says that he he did not go out into major groups. He says, "What is they they ask like why aren't you doing that?" So he says that there are certain excuses that cannot be mentioned. There could be some reasons that you don't disclose to people. There could be some confidential reasons that you don't disclose to people. He started teaching when he was only 17 years of age. Some of the things that he said that it is not appropriate for an alim to speak with knowledge, to basically impart knowledge to those who, is, who aren't going to listen. Because then what you're doing is you're degrading the very knowledge that you're providing. Because people aren't going to listen. That basically needs to be obviously contextualized and understood in a... right. Now generally speaking, when we have programs, people who come there, you'd expect that they would be there to at least listen to something, even if they're there to socialize as well. I mean, recently I've been going to certain programs and people come there as, as if they're dressed for a wedding. Maybe they're just respecting the, the program, but they're not dressed in a way that shows respect to the knowledge. So it's become a social event sometimes, unfortunately, in some places. Not everywhere, alhamdulillah, we still have. We're not trying to make it all sound bleak. Right? There's no need to exaggerate that. It happens in some places like that. There needs to be a respect for that. That's why... <clears throat> Look at Imam Malik. When he would sit down to teach, when he would sit down to teach, first he would go and make wudu. Then he would make two rak'ats of prayer. Nafil prayer, haja, salatul haja, whatever it is. He would then comb his beard. He would then put perfume on. He would apply scent. Then he would sit in a very, very noble, in a very, very noble way. He would sit in a very honorable way, full of awe that would 
he would sit in such a way and his presence was such that people would not raise their voices in front of him. There would be bakhur in that gathering. This is especially if he's teaching hadith. If he was teaching something else, he wasn't always like that. But when he's teaching hadith, there would be special arrangement. Now we don't have bakhur here because some people don't like bakhur, right? It irritates them because of the smoke. But I, uh, I do believe that when you come in here, there is a, a good scent. Because we did research as to... Didn't you find that? Can you not smell it? So say so, man. Because right? um, that's something that I have a personal gripe. You go to masjids that have been built with huge amounts of money, have been adorned to look very beautiful. In fact, overly done, right? If you could say. Huge amounts of money. But the one thing that they have not concerned about is the olfactory senses. And the olfactory senses are so important. If you didn't have the olfactory, which means the, the, the senses of the nose, you wouldn't enjoy your food. They say that a huge part of eating and the pleasure that you get from eating, even a salt and vinegar packet of crisp, or a cheese and onion for that matter, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference if your nose was clipped and you couldn't smell. So that's extremely important to understand that when you come to the masjid, I mean, companies, they actually go and they undertake research as to what's the perfect scent for the mood they're trying to create for their shop, whatever it is. Hotels do that, right? They have a certain signature fragrance that has been specially developed for them for the mood they're trying to create because different uh, essences, different fragrances have, have different uh, benefits or harms for that matter, of course. So masjid should undergo research. I mean, if somebody really wants to do that, they should do that. I've seen that in very few masajid, very few. That's why when we had this place, we made sure that um, we did research that what would be the best scent system. Um, so the, what we're using is probably the most cost-effective and nice system that, that we're using. Uh, the industrial ones are extremely expensive, right? Extremely expensive. So alhamdulillah, I think we've reached a balance. So hopefully it's, uh, it's a... It adds to the experience. It adds to the experience. So he would have the place uh, incense with Ud. Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak says that once I was with Imam Malik ibn Anas and he was ha- teaching a hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He would sit with a lot of very distinguished uh, respect that he would sit with. So once he was sitting there teaching, a scorpion somehow got to him and stung him 17 times. Abdullah ibn Mubarak is, is mentioning this. 17 times. You could just tell by his facial expression and change of color that something was going on. But otherwise, he did not move at all. He says, Kana, uh, his, uh, his face was becoming yellow and changing in terms of color, but he did not stop teaching the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He carried on teaching just out of respect for not pausing in between and disrupting the flow of the hadith of Rasulullah Somebody then asked him afterwards about it. He says, how did you do that? He says, إِنَّمَا صَبَرْتُ إِجْلَالًا لِحَدِيثِهِ The only reason I was patient and I tolerated it. How you tolerate that? There must be a bigger cause for you, that's why. Otherwise, if you don't have a bigger cause, this is your biggest cause, your biggest concern. When you've got a bigger concern, other concerns which may be very difficult for others, they suddenly become easier to deal with because you've got a bigger thing 
to worry about. That's why they say that once you make Allah your cause, then nothing else matters anymore. It makes complete sense because your mind is attuned to that. That's your main focus. Doesn't matter what's happening on the way, that's your main focus. Love blinds you and deafens you and makes you immune to a certain degree. As I said, he was extremely awe-inspiring. People would be very overawed by, by him in his presence. And if he, were, if he was ever asked a question, he gave a response. Nobody had, nobody had the courage to say, Aina, min Aina. Like, where did you get this from? If you're going to ask him, you take his word and that's it. Not that, I mean, that he was a very soft-hearted person. It wasn't that he was rough and gruff. It was just that people had this overall respect for him. Uh, according to this biography, it says that uh, this, is, that this biography is by, uh, quoted by Imam Sawi, another great Maliki scholar of Egypt. He says that he used to see the Prophet ﷺ every night in his dream. Imam Malik, rahimahullah, used to see the Prophet ﷺ in his dream every night. Says that he would only go to toilet, use the bathroom, as they would say in America, three times. Uh, sorry, once every three days. Now I know a doctor is going to say that's bad. Let me give you some urine tablets, you know, some so you can release. This is that's harmful for you. If your patient came and said I don't go for three, what would you do? Like, give him, give him laxatives, right? Body. Exactly. But this is this is because we expect them to be eating healthily, so then they're better. Otherwise, it's going to be in the stomach. But this is not just him. There are other tabi. I think I remember Abdurrahman ibn Abi Layla. I think about him as well. He would go infrequently and maybe defecate just once a month or something like that. Because of the small amounts they would eat. The, the really dry, rough amount, small amount they would eat just to survive. That, that's these people. I mean, of course, the way we eat, we better go every day. Right? But, um, so, and then he used to say, he used to say, Wallahi laqad istahyaytu min Allah fi kathrati taraddi lil khala. I'm embarrassed in front of Allah of how many times I go to the toilet, how many times I go to relieve myself. There's various uh, views about other things. Uh, Imam Abu Hanifa was once, because he met Imam Malik, rahimahullah, in Medina Munawwara. They met each other because they were contemporaries. Imam Shafi came after Imam Abu Hanifa. Uh, though Imam, uh, he, Imam Shafi did meet Imam, Imam Malik because he, uh, Imam, Abu, Ma, Imam Shafi was born in 150 Hijri and Imam Malik died in 100 and 79. So he actually studied with him in his last years. Imam Shafi studied with Imam Malik in his last years. So Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah was asked about Imam Malik. So he said that I've not seen anybody more knowledge of the Sunnah of Rasulullah than him. Uh, Layth ibn Sa'ad, another great muhaddith, he says that Laqitu Malik al Madina. And I met Imam Malik in Medina and I asked him that why don't you wipe away the perspiration from your forehead? So this was obviously on that occasion when he had met Imam Abu Hanifa. He said, this happened with Imam Abu Hanifa when I was with him. That's when I was perspiring. Innahu la faqihun ya Misri. Oh Egyptian, because uh, this Layth ibn Sa'ad is the alim of, of Egypt. You know like Imam Malik was in Medina Munawwara, Imam Abu Hanifa was in Kufa. Layth ibn Sa'ad was the alim of Egypt. In fact, today if you go there, his grave is well known, him and his son, and that's a very important place because he's the greatest, probably the greatest person they have there. Aside from the family of the Prophet who are buried there, some of the, 
some of the granddaughters or daughters, I'm not sure, the, uh, not the daughters, but uh, granddaughters of the Prophet ﷺ, right? Or great-granddaughters. Aside from that, the greatest alim that they've ever had is Layth ibn Sa'ad. He's a tabi'i. And that's where the Hajj possession used to start from. In the olden days, when the Hajj caravan from Egypt used to travel, used to start from there. It's an amazing, you know, they, they have a lot of tabarruk there. That's what they, they consider. So this is Layth ibn Sa'ad. He's meeting another great scholar, Imam Malik. He sees him in perspiring and says, why don't you remove that perspiration? Why don't you wipe it away? He says, that happened when I was with Imam Abu Hanifa. He's truly a jurist. Then Layth ibn Sa'ad says, I got to meet Imam Abu Hanifa afterwards. And I said to him, what a wonderful statement. What a wonderful praise has Imam Malik mentioned about you. So then he says, Imam Abu Hanifa responded to him, he says that Wallahi ma ra'itu asra' bi jawabin sadiqin wa zuhdin tamim min Malik ibn Anas I've not seen anybody that's quicker to give a truthful answer Very truthful, truthful answer And complete abstinence of the dunya Like no, no ulterior motives That more than Imam Malik So that's Imam Malik for you, that's just a brief biography you know, what is all the hype about Malikis and Shafi'is? Let's understand, that's basically what I'm trying to provide here. I mean, many of the Hanafis will listen to Imam Abu Hanifa's biography often maybe, but you don't hear about others. They were all great, that's why they are where they are. Now let's move on to Imam Shafi'i, he's Abu Abdullah. Muhammad ibn Idris ibn Abbas ibn Uthman ibn Shafi' ibn Sa'ib ibn Abdullah ibn Yazid ibn Hashim ibn Abdul Muttalib ibn Abdi Munaf. He's a family of the Prophet. ﷺ. Ibn Sa'ib, Ibn Abdullah, Ibn Yazid, Ibn Hashim. So he's from the same family of the Qurashi family as such. So he's not from the family, he's not a Sayyid himself, but his, he's from that same, cla uh, same tribe because it, he links up uh, at a great grandfather of the Prophet. ﷺ. That's where they link up. Imam Shafi, very interestingly, was actually born in Gaza. In, Bal in Palestine, in Gaza, in Palestine. And if you have to remember that Gaza part is actually right next to the Sinai. Sinai is part of Egypt today. So that all area is linked. In fact, that's the way that Egypt was conquered. They came through probably Gaza into what they call the Sinai, the Arish area called in, in, in Sinai. And they went across that desert area into Cairo, which is current day Cairo, which is Misr in those days. Uh, the whole thing is Misr now anyway. And that, that's what they uh, that, that's what uh, Amr ibn al anhu. that's when he conquered it. So, he was born in Gaza. On the day, it says, Wallahu alam, but he says here, on the day that Imam Abu Hanifa passed away. He was definitely born in 150 Hijri. This is the first time that I'm reading, and I, I, don't, I haven't researched this myself, so I can't uh, verify or deny this or confirm it. But he, he, according to this biographer, it was the same day that Imam Abu Hanifa passed away. Wallahu alam. He, uh, he was born a yatim, or at least he was brought up as a yatim and orphan because his father had passed away. So his mother brought him up. Now, subhanAllah, I find this extremely inspirational, especially for those women who are widowed uh, or who are divorcees maybe. Who don't have a father, pitch, a father figure in the picture uh, for children as well. 
even such children and it's not the first example there are many other examples of people like that they actually sometimes strive harder if they get the right environment but unfortunately many of these people don't get the right environment because generally the mother they have a different relationship with the child than a father generally does <clears throat> so sometimes <clears throat> the the complementary tarbiyah and nurturing that needs to take place doesn't but he's a great example of a child without a father an orphan. He was brought up by his mother with the, in extreme difficulties, extreme adversity. They didn't have much to go by. There was no single mother allowance in those days, right? There was nothing of that nature. They would just have to survive by doing whatever odd jobs or uh, assistance. He was then taken to Makkah Mukarramah, subhanallah. From Gaza, he went to Makkah Mukarramah when he was only two years old. That's where he was brought up. So born in Gaza, two years later, he's in Makkah Mukarramah, he's brought up there, he memorizes the Quran, what else do you That was the, probably the, the best thing his mother did for him. Took him to Makkah, there you've got Hifdul Quran, all the, you know, mashallah, everything going on. And he was only seven years old when he finished memorizing the Quran. He was only seven when he finished memorizing the Quran. And not just the Quran, but he also memorized the Mu'atta of Imam Malik. Imam Malik is still, uh, still alive. His book has already become popular. There are already people who are memorizing it. And that book is on hadith. So he memorizes that whole hadith collection of Imam Malik. He's only 10 years by that time. So at 7, he, he memorizes the Quran. Three years later, he memorizes the Mu'atta of Imam Malik, which is a significant book. He, his Shaykh gave him permission to give fatwa when he was 15 years old. I mean, we get to the age of 30, 40, we can't give a fatwa, even if we had the training. So he must have studied in such a way that, and there was, uh, you know, just there was no distraction in those days. There was no computer games. There was no phone to distract you. There was nothing else. To do. That's all you did. You probably didn't do anything else. You'd probably just be studying all that time. And I would say that even today, even today, haven't we got young 16, 17 year olds who have become millionaires because they use their mind behind something? All right. We've got that today. If you have, I believe that the amount of effort I've seen uh, my children, other children putting in behind their GCSEs, which to be honest, I mean, sometimes is an absolute waste of time, except when you're studying maths or something like that, right? Some of these topics are just a waste of time because you're never going to use them again. It's just to prove who you are so you can get into university, go do A-levels, then that is to prove that you can get into university. And the only reason you go to university is so you can get a job, which may be completely unrelated. Sometimes it is related, but sometimes it's not. But the whole industry becomes like that. Right? It's not as capitalized yet in England as it is in America. The America is just a massive capitalist venture, the university system. Because to actually even get into a medical course, right, or a law course, a law degree, you have to actually take another exam, for which, you, for which at that time I remember, the, just the training for that course was the training for a course the LSAT, which is basically the law school administration test or something like that, to get into law school, which one are you going to go into? That just that course cost eleven, twelve hundred dollars at the time. Now it probably costs like two thousand dollars. Not the studies itself, just the studying for the exam to get in. It's just added layers and layers and layers to make it more competitive because everybody's doing it. I'm not saying it's all wrong, but that's why pick very carefully what you're doing. Otherwise, find another way to make money circumvent the whole thing right become a bill gates or something man drop out if you, if you really know what you're talking about 
So that's Imam Shafi'i for you. He gave, started giving fatwas when he was 15 years of age. And there is another, there is another tradition which says that عَالِمُ قُرَيْشٍ يَمْلَأُ طِبَاقَ الْعَرْضِ عِلْمًا that there will be an alim of the Quraysh who will essentially fill the sides of the earth, all the sides of the earth with knowledge. And that kind of abundance, that kind of uh, spread of knowledge has not come about from anybody. I mean, according to um, the analysis of at least this biographer, uh, any more than from Imam Shafi'i rahimahullah. That's why Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, rahimahullah, he said that this alim is Shafi'i. So that's Imam Shafi'i for you. It's very, very briefly. Um, Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, he is Nu'man ibn Thabit ibn Ta'us, ibn Hurmuz. There's different opinion, difference of opinion as to whether he's from an Arab ancestry or from a Persian ancestry. Mostly it's known that he's from a Persian ancestry, but according to one version, it could be Arab. Wallahu alam. He's, uh, I mean, according to some, he even met up to 20 Sahaba. But we can definitely establish at least two or three, four for sure, and maybe, wait, maybe more. So that's why he's the earliest of them, earliest of the four schools. And he definitely is a Tabi'i. I don't think anybody can deny that he's a Tabi'i. Right? He, uh, it's also claimed that he heard hadith from at least nine of them. Anas ibn Malik, Amr ibn Hurayth, Abdullah ibn Anas, Abdullah ibn Harith, Jabir ibn Abdullah. Ibn Abi Awfa, Wathila Ibn Al-Asqa, Ma'qid Ibn Yasar, Abu Tufayl Amir. Abu Tufayl Amir al-Dawsi was the final, last Sahabi to pass away. Among all the Sahaba, Abu Amir, Abu Tufayl Amir was the final Sahaba to pass away. Final Sahabi to pass away. And there's Aisha bint Ujra. That's Imam Abu Hanifa. Now his biography is well known. Uh, so he doesn't go into it. وَأَمَّا أَحْمَدِ بْنُ حَنْبَلْ As far as Ahmad ibn Hanbal is concerned, رَحِمَهُ اللَّهِ فَهُوَ أَبُوْ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ أَحْمَدْ إِبْنُ مُحَمَّدْ إِبْنُ حَنْبَلْ هِلَالِ إِبْنُ أَسَدْ الْمَرْوَزِي الشَّيْبَانِ So he's from the Shayban tribe. A similar tribe to Muhammad ibn al-Hasan al-Shaybani, Imam Abu Hanifa's student. He also higher up than Imam Shafi connects with the same ancestry as the Prophet but higher up. So he's not as close Quraysh as, as such. He, he connects at Nizar ibn Ma'ad ibn Adnan, just three down from Adnan, whereas Imam Shafi connects much earlier, or much later rather, the way you're looking at it. So anyway, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal is from Baghdad. His mother brought him to Baghdad from Marwa, which is a place in Turkmenistan today. He's from an Arab ancestry for sure, but remember the Muslims are spread around. So he was in a place called Mar, which is today called Mari, in Turkmenistan. It's on the Oxus River. She was, uh, she, she was pregnant when she brought him to Baghdad. Remember, Baghdad was the major city at that time, right? Because the Abbasids were in power, they had established that city. And he was born in Baghdad, and he became a student of Imam Shafi'i. So he studied directly under Imam Shafi'i, just like Imam Shafi'i studied under Imam Malik. Imam Shafi says that I left from Baghdad and because Imam Shafi was also in Baghdad later and that's where he taught Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. He says then he left because he eventually he, was in, he went to Egypt. That was the last place uh, that he stayed in, 
in Cairo, and that's where he's buried today. Imam Shafi is buried in Cairo today. But he says that when I left Baghdad, I had not left anybody behind me that was more, had greater juristic insight, that was more scrupulous, that was a greater ascetic, and that was more knowledgeable than Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal has been even mentioned by Imam ibn al-Jawzi to be one of the three of the past scholars of the first six, uh, first six centuries, first five centuries at least, who were masters in both knowledge and practice. Because some were masters in one side, they had the other side, but not necessarily were masters. But he, he mentions three people, Sufyan al-Thawri, Ahmad ibn Hanbal and Hassan Basri. So Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal is definitely one of the great ones. So Imam Ahmad used to, rahimahullah, he used to pretty much stay awake the whole night from the time he was young, right? And he would say, it says that nearly every night he would do a khatam of the Qur'an. Um, he doesn't go much more into it, but basically then Imam Sawi says that uh, the fadila and the virtues of these Imams is more well known than the sun, right? Even at noontime, I mean, they, they, it's well known. He doesn't have to, he's just mentioned certain points. Imam Abu Hanifa passed away, he's, sorry, he, he was born in 80 Hijri, he says, and he died in 150 Hijri. And he mentions the deaths of the others. Imam Malik was bo born in around 90 something, right? And he, he died in 179 79 Hijri. Imam Shafi was born in 150 Hijri. And he died in 204 Hijri. So he's 54 years old. 204 Hijri. He was only 54. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, he was born in 164. 14 years after Imam Abu Hanifa passed away, 14 years younger than Imam Shafi'i, right? 14 years. And he died in. 241 Hijri. So he's the latest. He's a contemporary of Bukhari. In fact, Bukhari has hadith from him and Muslim. Right? They have hadith from him. Because Bukhari passed away in 256, if I remember correctly. So uh, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal is earlier than all of them. Uh, all of the hadith, those major hadith scholars. But he's the last of the Imams. So next, uh, next time we will discuss the other two groups that he's talking about, the Sufis. And that's going to be quite amazing, the kind of uh, reason why the most famous among them have become uh, well known is because of the amazing things and amazing characteristics and their amazing achievements. So inshallah, uh, we'll look at that next time. Allahumma anta salam wa minka salam tabarakta ya dhal jalali wal ikram Allahumma ya hayyu ya qayyum bi rahmatika nastaghith اللهم يا حنان يا منان لا إله إلا أنت سبحانك إنا كنا من الظالمين اللهم صل وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم اغفر لنا وارحمنا وعافنا واهدنا وارزقنا اللهم اغفر لأمة سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم اللهم اغفر للمسلمين والمسلمات والمؤمنين والمؤمنات الأحياء منهم والأموات 
اللهم اغفر لنا ولوالدينا ولمشايخنا ولاساتذتنا ولطلابنا ولاخواننا ولاخواتنا ولازواجنا ولاولادنا ولاقاربنا ولاصدقائنا ولكل من له حق علينا ولكل من اوصانا بالدعاء اللهم ارحمهم وعافهم واعف عنهم اللهم اغفر لأمة سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم اللهم اغفر لموتانا المسلمين الذين شهدونك بالوحدانية وماتوا على ذلك Oh Allah we ask you for complete forgiveness Oh Allah we ask you to make us come close to you Oh Allah grant us your love and the love of those whose love benefits us in your court Oh Allah, oh Allah make our surroundings, surroundings conducive for our worship and our dhikr to you O oh Allah, make us of those who abundantly remember you and abundantly thank you. O oh Allah, make us of the grateful ones. Protect us from becoming ungrateful. O oh Allah, we ask that you give us your special attention. O oh Allah, turn to us with your love. O oh Allah, grant us your forgiveness and your mercy. O oh Allah, grant us your blessings in everything that you have already given us. O oh Allah, in the, all the blessings you have given us, O oh Allah, grant us greater blessing. O oh Allah, bless us in our iman, in our lives, in our children, in our work, in our businesses. O oh Allah, in our life in this world, grant us the kalima la ilaha illallah on our deathbed. O oh Allah, those who are here, those who are listening, O oh Allah, bless them all and allow all of their permissible needs to be fulfilled. O oh Allah, we ask you for complete acceptance. O oh Allah, we don't do much. Grant us the tawfiq to do more. Grant us the tawfiq. Grant us the protection to keep away from evil, to keep away from mundane things. O oh Allah, grant us tawfiq in all the work that we do. Allow us to only do that which is beneficial. O oh Allah, keep us away from that which is non-beneficial. O oh Allah, give us a blessing and barakah in our projects. O oh Allah, O oh Allah, we ask that you make us useful people in this world, useful human beings, proper human beings, proper insan and proper mu'mineen, proper followers of your messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and that you make the rest of our life better than the previous part of our life remove our difficulties and our calamities O oh Allah grant us the characteristics that your messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that muslimin should have how a real believer and a true believer should be O oh Allah grant us those characteristics Oh Allah, we know we're, only, we're asking you and we may not work hard enough to achieve this. But oh Allah, facilitate this for us. Oh Allah, facilitate this for us. Oh Allah, we ask that you send your abundant blessings on our messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And all of the, those who have followed him in Ihsan. All of the great imams and the great scholars and all of those who've brought this deen down to us, who've helped to transmit it to us. Oh Allah, reward them with a full reward. O oh Allah, grant us the company of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the hereafter. O oh Allah, accept our du'as. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifuna wa salamun alal mursaleen. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.